Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, virtual edition. I'm joined by Aaron Goodman. Aaron is, of course, assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego. He is a bone marrow transplanter. He's a heme malignancy aficionado. He is Papa Heme on Twitter. Aaron, it's good to see you. Hey, good to see you. Great to be back. We had dinner recently. I was down in San Diego. We had dinner. Yeah, it was nice to finally, you know, I was saying, I felt like, you know, we're good friends and uh, it was nice to finally meet you in person. It was a pleasure. It was a yeah. pleasure. We'll have to post all the selfies out online soon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there's so much that's happened since we last spoke. And I wonder where we should dive in. We should dive in on the latest controversy, which uh, I did in a video I covered. It was a really interesting phase one study you had found, you had pointed out a vulnerability in this phase one study. And just so listeners will know, um, I think different people will feel differently about the use of dose-adjusted REPOC in double-hit DLBCL, double-hit high-grade B-cell lymphoma, MIC rearranged uh, high-grade B-cell lymphoma or DLBCL. People will feel differently about EPOC in PMBL. But when it comes to DLBCL NOS, average everyday large cell lymphoma, it's pretty clear our CHOP is sufficient and EPOC is just more toxic. And what you found was some investigators were running a phase one clinical trial of dose-adjusted REPOC with the dose escalation of a novel drug, venetoclax, um, in some patients who had DLBCL NOS. And what that means is that they were going to get exposed to a backbone that is more toxic and no more effective than CHOP to participate in this phase one study. And you had some problems with that. And that led to a nice discussion and a firestorm, if you have it. Yeah, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, honestly, I wasn't trying to create controversy. And I, I and I apologize for those that I offended, because I clearly did offend some people. And I, I wasn't the intent uh, of the tweet. You weren't trying um, to be provocateur. I, I was. And, you know, I will go over in detail, you know, some of the responses that I got, uh, um, uh, including people that I'm friendly with and still like and get along with. Uh, um, but the bottom line is, um, as you said, we know uh, for sure the CalGB study, the numbers escaping me, uh, was a, a wonderfully done randomized study in all comers DLBCL advanced stage, and they compared dose-adjusted EPOC-R to R-CHOP. And as you said in your wonderful video, those curves are like, you can't separate the two. Uh, uh, so there is no difference in efficacy. Um, which was a shock to some, um, but you know, then again, as all the other studies before with PROMACE, uh, CYTOMOM and all the acronyms you can come up with, uh, just duplicated that. Um, it, but it did show um, significantly more febrile neutropenia, uh, mucositis and neuropathy. So we know this 
for sure, or as sure as we're going to know anything in the field of oncology. I think we can all agree on that. And so this phase one study um, started, uh, uh, which basically took the backbone of dose-adjusted EPOC-R and added venetoclax, which, you know, it's not, I'm not, I don't think that's a bad study. Uh, do it in double hit. We don't, we don't treat double hit well. Um, we have no good outcomes. And that's a reasonable uh, a study, uh, phase one study in double hit lymphoma or, uh, or very high grade aggressive uh, B cell lymphomas. But what the study did was they took everyone, uh, the total accrual was, I believe, over 30 and roughly 10 to, I don't know the exact number, but it was at least 10 were run-of-the-mill diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Right. right. It yes. started enrolling after CalGB resulted. Uh, you know, not, I, I understand they started designing before, and I know I, I do do clinical trials, despite what people say. Uh, um, I have, I even had a little investigator-initiated study. I understand the pains uh, of it in designing trials, and you have to work with companies. I get it. Uh, but to me, it's very simple. And I kind of stand by my statements. Uh, um, the the CalGB study resulted. We know that this regimen EPOC-R is more toxic and it's no better. And now we have a phase one study, not a phase three, a phase one study in a newly diagnosed population that is highly curable with a very, I think, safe regimen that is easy to give, our shot. And you subjected at least 10 patients, again, a little bit more or a little less, to dose-adjusted EPOC-R, which you're guaranteeing them more toxicity, no benefit, boom, right there. And then adding venetoclax, which there's no way on earth adding venetoclax is gonna make it less toxic. (laughs) That's just not possible. Uh, um, And it's gonna be more toxic. And, um, you know, ethics or not, you know, I I just don't know what, I'm gonna say it. I would like to have been at the consenting process with those patients, uh, you know, uh, uh, and what it went, and how it went, and if that was adequately explained, if you told these patients that your disease is highly curable with RCHOP and the regimen EPOC-R is no better, uh, um, and we know it's more toxic, and we're going to add another drug, uh, and we're not even going to tell you by the end of the study if this is going to help you, this is a phase one study, it's dose finding, and the patient said yes, then okay, I guess then they were consented, but I just can't imagine it. So you don't uh, think it's uh, going to uh, be something like this? I'll be like, Mr. Jones, you know, you have diffuse yeah. large B-cell lymphoma. Good news is we got those molecular tests back. Um, that thing we really worried about that we had talked about on the last visit, we don't have that. You don't have a MIC rearrangement. Uh, that's good news for you. That means you have a much better chance of getting rid of this. And by getting rid of this, I mean, we're going to treat you for a few months. And afterwards, hopefully it's gone and it doesn't come back. And the treatment is the standard treatment is our chop. It's a pretty, it's a treatment we're really comfortable with. You come in one day, every 21 days. Uh, the first visit is a little bit longer because of the rituximab, but every other visit gets a little bit shorter. Um, and it has a really a stellar cure rate. I mean, we're talking depending on your um, uh, your IPI score, maybe 65, 70, 75, 80%. That's your cure rate. Or you could participate in this phase one study. Of course, phase one studies are not really meant to benefit you. They're meant to learn more for the greater community. You won't get this one-day regimen that we have all this familiarity with. And it's really easy and simple to give. You're going to get a continuous infusion of some of the same drugs, but at slightly different doses, adding in one extra drug. It's going to take about five days. It's going to come with some growth factor support. So you're going to have to inject yourself. It's a little bit more cumbersome. You're going to have to come in and either wear the pump and take it home, or you have to be inpatient admitted the whole time. And we're going to add a new drug that we don't know much about in this disease uh, that doesn't yet have an approval in this disease. Uh, we're going to increase that dose to look for toxicity. Um, so, and, and of course, I have to tell you that that backbone is actually proven to not have a higher cure rate and be more toxic and disruptive to your life. Uh, so 
which would you rather do? <laughs> which would you rather do? But I, what you just did was, and I don't, no one can argue this. I, I invite anyone to come on any podcast. It doesn't need to be yours. It could be any medium to say that the consent that you just did was not the appropriate consent for that study for a run of the mill DLBCL. There, there to me is, I'm standing by it. That's an absolute. That was the way to consent. And I can't imagine anyone would sign up for that. You know, you got to be very careful. I'm not a phase one trialist. Um, so I uh, have disclosure, but when you're doing phase one studies in newly diagnosed curable patients, you gotta, I, you gotta think, I mean, that I, I don't want to design those cause I'm scared to do that cause for various obvious reasons. So, uh, you just got to really think through it. And, I, and then, so I posted this on Twitter. I forget exactly what I said, uh, you know, and, um, you know, there was the backlash, uh, uh, that how dare I call, uh, investigators unethical and that's rude and mean. And, um, I talked to my wife about it. She's much more calm than me. And I go, I explained her and she's not an oncologist. She's an anesthesiologist, but she thinks that what I do is confusing and makes no sense. And she can never do it. <laughs> but I explained it to her exactly kind of how we talked. And I go, is that unethical? She goes, yes. And then I go, well, should I have tweeted that? She goes, well, you should, you know, that's maybe not a nice thing to say. You should maybe be more like Monty who does it more kind of nice. And, <laughs> you know, those of you know, he's the awesome myeloma doctor and a but, but I go, Amalia, this is how I feel. Uh, um, um, but so the question then becomes is, should I have stated this on social media? Uh, is that the appropriate form to do it? Um, and I had followers who are fellows, including retweets saying, God, I'm disappointed in you, Papa Heem. You're a great educator. Um, you know how, you know, it's kind of cruel the way you called out some of these investigators. So I don't know. I mean, a part of me is like, I still stand by it, but a lot of people I thought I what I did was wrong and I value other people's opinions. I want to know if I'm being an, an ass, you know, uh, um, and uh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I don't know. I mean, what's Twitter supposed to be used for? I mean, I, I wasn't like, I didn't pinpoint a specific Only, only pylons, Aaron, only pylons. <laughs> well, it's not like I, I didn't tag a specific investigator and say, this guy's evil and cruel. I just study. Yes, I know people can look up the investigators, but I didn't specifically tag them. And, you know, was I aware that someone on Twitter might see it? Yes, the thought crossed my mind. But then I would hope that they could provide maybe a counter argument. I wasn't going to shut them off and let them say, Aaron, here's what you're missing and here's why we did it. But that's not the response I got. The response I just got was, you really shouldn't do what you just did, Aaron. Um, it, it, it's not polite. These are colleagues. And mm. can you, you know, Twitter's not the forum for that. Can you imagine doing that at an ash? And to be honest, I would ask that question at ash uh, 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 and I, I, if I saw it. So yes, I can't imagine doing it at ash. Uh, um, so I don't know what's right. Uh, um, I know where you stand, but I, I would be curious to know what others think. Well, I guess we'll, I guess I encourage others to write in. You can yeah. write into plenary session podcast at gmail.com. You can tweet at you or plenary session podcast don't tweet at me because i don't read all that but you can tweet at one of those two um but i have two things that makes you think about one this idea that well we planned it before we knew i was like imagine aaron you know you're in san diego imagine um you were going to come up and visit me in san francisco and you're like you know the fastest way to get up there is you just hop on the i-5 and you're there and you know maybe 10 hours 12 hours but then imagine if god forbid there was an earthquake and i-5 was ripped in half and it was a totally disrupted road um, would you get on the I-5 then and drive all that way and come to the disrupted road and say, you know, I had planned it when the road was intact. No, you would go around. You would go around. And so my point is that I don't like the excuse that, you know, I had planned it before I knew CLGB, I think it's 50303, um, before I knew those results of the, of the Wyndham Wilson, Nancy Bartlett study, because 
once you know those results, you change your plan. You change the plan. That's what you do in life. That's one. Two, um, I guess the next thing I would say is I think, yeah, you want to be careful about the feelings of the investigators. I mean, I think that's a, that's what these people are pointing out to you. Like, you know, you, Aaron Goodman, are not thinking enough about their feelings. They worked hard on this, which I'm sure they did. It's not easy. It's a pain in the butt to run any trial. Um, they worked hard on it. Um, for some people, this is an accomplishment, you know, like it's like something they're going to put on their CV and they're proud of it, that they like worked on it. And so their feelings, their feelings are, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. They're, that's their feelings. On the other side, I don't know, you have, as you point out, I think nine or 11, something like that, about 10 patients who, you know, I don't know how to put this, but they were like seriously wronged. I mean, and they're not like, not like their careers were wronged. They're not missing an item on their CV wronged. They were wronged because they were exposed to toxic chemicals that um, are not better than alternative, simpler regimens. And like, they're physically, physically harmed. I'm like, and so like when I value the feelings versus the physical well-being of these people, in my mind, it boom, tips that like, this is more important. And so that's one thought. The next thought I thought is like, I don't know, these problems, the problem you're putting your finger on, I mean, um, they've been existing for some time. If you don't say it on Twitter, how are we ever going to fix it? Like people have been going up to microphones for 30 years. Eli Estes was one. He passed away recently. And I talked about that in a little thing I wrote about him. But I mean, people have been going up to microphones for years. Um, and, you know, what has that done? People have been, you could submit it to the New England Journal. I know where they're going to, they'll take your little letter and shred it right away. You know, they're not going to publish, you know, or you could submit it to it wherever this came out, Lancet Hematology or whatever. They, Lancet Hematology is maybe more open-minded. They'll publish it, but it's a letter. Not everyone's going to read it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm, I see your point. I mean, I see the point that nobody wants to pick on people unnecessarily, but also the bigger point I think is like human beings are really being harmed. So how are we ever going to fix that? If people yeah. like you don't say it. And again, I, I, I was picking on a trial. I understand people were part of the trial, just like we pick on movies when they suck. And there was a lot of people that went in to develop that movie. And um, this Twitter is good in the fact that it, it gives people a voice that wouldn't otherwise have a, you know, I'm not some famous trialist and, you know, I have a voice now because of Twitter. Uh, um, and, and, you know, these sounds cliche. These are people's lives. I mean, that's what matters the most. That's why I'm amazed by this. It, I, I, that's what I want to know what I'm missing. These are people that were seriously wronged. It, it's not, I mean, it, it's, it, they were, they were given a bad therapy. That's the bottom line that we knew was wrong. And, I will also point out that, you know, they could say, well, they found out right before and uh, then they would have to change everything. Well, it's tough. Clinical trial work is very tough. I will also point out that some of the investigators on that study were investigators on the CalGV study. So I think they kind of knew what was going on. <laughs> uh, they right. weren't the last people to find out about right. this. Right. 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 OK, uh, um, um, I mean, and that's the bottom bottom line. And, um, you know. What, fine, I'll just use Twitter if people just want me to post about, you know, CD34 positivity and things like that, you know, uh, uh, everyone's happy with education. But I, I, I do feel strongly that we need to, if we have something that we're not sure about or thinks wrong, or we should post it on Twitter and, and, and debate like we should as scientists and, and not get shut down.
while I paused, you asked me what fluvoxamine is, but we dare not discuss that here. But um, uh, I think, you know, what you're talking about is so interesting to me, which is like, I mean, I guess there's two issues. One is like the, the substantive issue itself. Like, was this trial problematic? The answer is, uh, I can't, there's not, I don't know if there's anyone who can argue with you. I mean, to be honest. So, okay. So that, let's put that aside. The next issue is the meta the issue. trial was like, problematic. It's problematic. I, 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 want, I encourage anyone to argue with me yeah. on any venue in front of anyone that can tell me how that is not problematic. I am open to it. Any of the investigators, I, I, we could have a friendly discussion. Tell me why Aaron is wrong. I guess like I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but what if somebody was like, we're going to take EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer, never smokers, and we're going to do a phase one in them of cisplatin, gemcitabine, and venetoclax. And you're like, why not give him osimertinib? Why are we not giving him osimertinib? You know, I guess in that case, maybe Aussie is... Uh, well, I, I mean, I guess maybe it's shown a PFS benefit. I guess if you extrapolate from Tony Mock, it's like, okay, okay, it's a slightly different analogy, but I'll, I'll think more about my analogy from solid tumor. Um, okay, I think. Well, what about the Vinay, the criticisms that I got, you know, a lot, including from some big people, which I found condescending. I'm going to say it. I thought they were being condescending. Um, how dare you criticize trials when you're not the one designing the the, the trials? Yeah, and um, I think, you know, which, as I stated, I do participate in clinical trial work. Yes, I am not some big trialist designer. Um, but even if I wasn't, even if I was a community oncologist, like, I think we should have a voice and understanding that's important and we can learn from each other. And I agree that you might have some insight that I don't, but I think that my insight is still valuable and important. And that's why we should have discussion. And if you're saying Twitter's not the place for that, then I don't know where, where we could all get together and do it uh, in this age. That's one of the few, few, few benefits of Twitter that we can do that. It connects us all and people can see, including patients, which, you know, people say patients see. That was an argument I got to. Patients saw that, that may have gotten that. Well, well that, you know, that brings up a sticky point. I, I, I you know, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, well, I, isn't that, I think the, the truth, you the know, philosophical principle to draw there yeah. is like, my understanding of medical error is that if a medical error is committed in the care of a patient, doctors have an obligation to disclose that error to the patient. And in fact, I think from some data at University of Michigan, that patients who have those honest discussions with their doctors are actually less likely to litigate than if they were to discover it from some other way. And so I guess what you're doing is to some degree, you know, if patients see it, you're disclosing the error. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's the, it's the honest truth. Uh, don't you have a right to know the honest truth? Um, so I think that that kind of argument goes the other way. When I looked at how people responded to you, I felt like, I don't know, I felt like it was disingenuous because the response wasn't, here's why Aaron Goodman is wrong. Here's why the trial was justified. It was, you don't know what it's like to have to compromise your principles. I mean, that's the, the gist of it is like, until you have been in my seat and having a repeated reputation deal with AbbVie and Pfizer and Novartis, you don't know what it's like to have to compromise your principles and give people unethical backbone care so you can continue to run this trial. Because let's be honest, the trial furthers the interest of the company. They're the ones, which company? The company that makes the one drug in that thing that costs a lot of money, which is the Venetoclax. That's the company that's benefiting from this trial. It's not, not the, the Christine makers or the Etoposide. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not Big Oncovin. Big Oncovin <laughs> is not cleaned enough. It's, it is the BCL2 inhibitor Venetoclax. It's they're the ones making, and they're trying to put Venetoclax in your cereal. Yep. I, everywhere I turn, I've been putting, giving me A's of Venetoclax, this Venetoclax. Don't they have an ongoing IDH inhibitor plus Venetoclax trial? I think they do, right? They probably do. I, I mean, think Venetoclax is a, I, 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 I support Venetoclax in the appropriate indications. I mean, it, it is yeah, a good well, drug. Yeah. But where the trial wins, I think it's a winner. Like I think like Viale or whatever, that AML yeah. trial, that's a good trial. But like, I guess one point to make about BCL2 is like, you know, like 
since that protein is at like the center of so many different molecular pathways, you can almost come up with like a biochemical reason why to try venetoclaxin like every single disease. Cause like all diseases signal through the apoptotic pathway, you know, to some degree. So you can like come up with justifications all the time. But in this case, I think, you know, they're trying to further a commercial interest. And I guess the other problem I had was that, you know, like you're not a trialist, but I don't know. There was an old story, old joke I heard when I was a trainee from a very senior guy who's now retired, so I can tell it. And he was like, you know, there's one person who was always like the first and last author of all the papers in a certain tumor type. I can't even say what, you know, I was all going to give it away. And and then I asked this guy, I was like, wow, how does that doctor, like this doctor is like the first or last author on like every single well done major thousand, you know, huge randomized study and all in the same tumor type. Like it must be like the best doctor ever. And they're like, oh, that doctor. I was like, no, he's like, you don't understand my friend. He's like, he's not the best doctor. He's the doctor who's happy to say the smallest PFS benefit is really important. <laughs> so it's like, it's like a race to see who, who will give me, yeah, I, I got a, I got a month, but is anyone going to defend half a month, a third of a month, 0. 0.2? You are the PI. <laughs> and they're like, that's how they picked him. Because he's like the person who's willing to defend the most trivial PFS benefit. And so I guess the point was that, I don't know, these trials are like, I don't know, they're like, the, like I, some of them are inevitable. Like, of course, you're going to run those studies. They're like huge corporations with broad clinical trials portfolios running these studies. And they need to find some local PI to kind of be the point person on the study. But, you know, if the PI didn't write the protocol, didn't conceive the idea, didn't analyze the data, doesn't even have access to the data, some, somebody else's statistical analysis, somebody else drafted the abstract, somebody else drafted the manuscript, somebody else submitted the manuscript, somebody else did the revise and resubmit, and somebody else wrote the letter in reply, then did they really do the trial? I mean, they just saw some patients and like opened up the the, the three ring binder of port protocol. I mean, that's what they did. But I don't know. I mean, I found it to be a bit harsh. I mean, I, I am I participate in, in, in industry sponsored studies and that's what you do. I mean, they're important. They give access to patients to good drugs sometimes. And 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 but the bottom line, what does I do is my as an investigator, my job is to understand the protocol, which I didn't write. Uh, I, I find appropriate patients for that's the most important. I think the investigator does is making sure it's appropriate study for the appropriate patients. And then I sign a lot of paperwork uh, 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 and, 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 and provide care to the patient, which I would be doing anyways. And then everything else is done by the company or whatever. And I sign off on an abstract and hey, it's at Ash, congratulations. But that, that, that's what it is. Now, investigator initiated studies are, are a little bit different, but they still you know, the bottom line with investigator initiated studies, having participated in them, yeah, the investigator has control over most, if not all, but the funding still comes from pharma and they still have to like the idea. And there's a lot of behind the scenes things. Well, it's up to you, but maybe you should change it this way kind of thing uh, uh, because the company has their interest and you're not going to get the money unless their interests are fulfilled by the trial. Yeah. I think that's one thing people don't realize, yeah. which is that people like there's like a line between there's like uh, industry sponsored studies and investigator initiated, and these are like tainted, and these are like pure. And then there's cooperative group studies that are like super pure. But I was like, you know, in like all of these studies, if the company don't play ball, you don't do the trial. And you think the company just gonna play ball like just like that? No, they're gonna run it through legal experts, through marketing experts, through people thinking about impacts on market share. If it'll subvert their other studies, their agenda, they're gonna run it through technical experts. I mean, they're not stupid. They're not going to give you drug to do a trial that will sabotage their like huge, vast agenda. Uh, and 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 if they were, I would they wouldn't. It would be irrational. Like they're incentivized to sell the product. And so yes, these trials are important. They, it, yes, it's an intellectual contribution to write an IIT and do it, um, but 
there is a check and balance and the big check is the company. And so it has to be kind of favorable. And then the other thing I think is like, I don't know, I know so many people who um, like that's their core thing. Like um, I've had many people who I know where I'm like, oh, look at this trial, look how flawed it is. And I'm like, let's write this paper together. And they're like, mm, you know what, dude, I, I, I got to meet with Jansen next week. So I can't have my name on that. Or I was like, oh, let's write this thing about cost of drugs. And you're like, you know what? One of the drugs you're talking about is Onyx and, you know, I got to deal with them. And so, no, you know, so people like, of course, you know, you would, if I was going to interview at University of San Diego for a job, I would have to take my name off, like why University of San Diego is a ripoff, you know, like as if I was writing something, you know, like you, you, you couldn't do both. It would look crazy. So, I mean, that's a natural temptation. Wait, let's talk about the thing that you got a lot of praise for which you were way ahead of the curve on, you money, which is um, the Bermuda Triangle, I like to call it, the Bermuda Triangle of Mel Flufin. Because Mel Flufin is living in the Bermuda Triangle of the lighthouse, the, the ocean, and the horizon. <laughs> and it just got lost in the Bermuda Triangle because it got snatched back off the market. So one, why does Mel Flufin have all these nautical analogies? Does anyone know why it's so nautical? <laughs> and two, um, you know, what's going on with the lighthouse study? Is it fair to randomize someone to Mel Flufin and a punch in the face? I mean, is that what the next study that they're going to do? What is Mel Flufin up to? Well, I would like, I don't know if we should talk about this. I don't want oncopeptides uh, to feel, you know, to, to not interact to with me and, and, and do trials with their wonderful drugs. So Cor Corporations um, are people, so they'll be wounded yes. by your comments and then they won't want to work with you. And I, I want to point out that we got criticized for buying, kind of being mean to Mel Flufin uh, early on. And I think the argument that, that we always have with melflufin, which for those that don't know, it's this, it's an alkylating agent, it's melphalin, and they, you know, add some peptides that makes it better somehow, you know, it has some, not, you know, this novel mechanism. Okay. And um, we always would just say, but it was approved on a phase two study that showed a, you know, a 20 to 30% response rate that wasn't super durable, and a heavily pretreated uh, population of patients with multiple myeloma. And what we always argued was, um, how's this different than melphalan, which costs a, a, a few pennies? And, um, you know, people, more options, the better for our patients. And, you know, that's not always true. I hate to break it to you. If the more options are bad and expensive and takes us away from doing things that are better, then that more option is not helping our patient. It is hurting our patient and society. Uh, but that's the usual argument we get when when drugs are approved off phase two studies. I'm going to put a uh, link to a little paper where we talk about some examples of where more is worse, right? Right yes. there. Link you, right you there. Please put, put it right that. There. Yes. Put it right there. <laughs> okay. Okay. Go on. Go more on. is not always better. Yeah. Uh, um, but the, the 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 lighthouse study, which I was super critical about, uh, and there's some pretty well known uh, myeloma physicians who uh, are PIs and leading that that industry sponsored or used to be industry. I think it's temporary. Yeah. You were saying they're these. Uh, it's the it's a who's who of myeloma on the lighthouse. Well, the there lighthouse. were some some pretty 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 good people on there. They've done lots of good things for multiple myeloma. Um, but the the study was um, we always make jokes, you know, three verse two, uh, 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 which is a recurring theme amongst multiple myeloma, uh, with rare exception. Uh, usually with PFS as an endpoint, and of course, three active drugs versus two with PFS is almost always going to be better. Um, you don't need trials to show that, but we continue to do them. Um, I uh, digress. Uh, go, so go back to uh, the lighthouse. Ocean. Lighthouse, sorry. Lighthouse. Uh, the lighthouse study. It was not three verse two. It was three verse one. Okay. In relapsed multiple myeloma, they compared single agent daratumumab. Okay. To daratumumab 
uh, malflufen, and a steroid. They even allowed that you could look at the protocol. If you had prior DARA, you could still enroll on the study. Oh, come on. I mean, they said with accept, oh. they said they would. So you could have had prior DARA too, ma'am, and be randomized to the, to the study and get single agent DARA without even a little steroid. I, I, I think there was some, I dug up the protocol. I think there was something in there for reactions and things like that. Oh, so, so nice that they would give a, a little steroid uh, with it. And, and this they, was the what, are they doing? what are they doing? I don't know. And PFS is the end point. And like, this is such a pointless study. And if no one can, I don't know how anyone could say this study is not pointless. That is, I don't, you know, that they're going to show PFS is better and, and clearly harm anyone randomized to the uh, uh, DARA 2 mammar. And, and bottom line is actually both arms were harmed because uh, 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 melfluffin's later been shown there was a, a signal in the ocean study uh, versus pomalidomide. Uh, um, that showed uh, the has you know there was a possible increased risk of death if you yeah. were exposed to malfluffin. Yeah. Yeah. And since then the uh, study has been on hold, yeah. um, and the drug has now been withdrawn from the market yeah. uh, in the United States. It took yeah. a death signal to stop the Lighthouse study, which yeah. shouldn't have. It should have just taken any I think investigator who's handed this protocol, like we're handed protocols all the time at UCSD. This would have I wouldn't have even presented this one to my colleagues. It just would have been deleted immediately. Yeah. Uh, um, but it's that rare go. randomized yeah. trial where both arms are harmful. <laughs> it's like it, both it, are it harmful. happens. It's happened both a few times harmful. in multiple myeloma, uh, Bellini study. Uh, there were a few studies with a uh, uh, checkpoint blockade that, that the, the, the three was worse than the two. Speaking of Bellini, isn't that yeah. venetoclax also? Bellini's venetoclax. Yeah. See, that's venetoclax. And, um, um, I told whole, you, venetoclax is in your cereal. It's everywhere. Yes. That's a whole nother argument. I'm actually writing something, uh, a debate with a colleague who, we can be friends and disagree. Isn't that great? Uh, where he's pro venetoclax and I'm anti venetoclax, at least for now in most of my loma until more data is available. I mean, I guess I would say, I know many people, they like to do it in 1114 to this yes. day. You know, if you're 1114, but you're also like one Q amplification, seven copies or three, I mean, I'm like, is it going to do anything? I mean, we know with like, um, I don't know. I mean, we know with like Len in 5Q minus uh, MDS that it works uh, a little bit, but if you start to have other cytogenetic abnormalities, it don't work so well. And this, the problem with 1114 and venetoclax isn't that it isn't promising. It's that nobody has any randomized data to show how to give it and in whom and which people and when, um, but yet hope springs eternal. Well, they're um, doing the study. and you They're know, doing I it just, to their credit. Yeah, they're doing yeah. it. And so I'll wait, you know, I'll just wait for the study. I mean, as well, that's old just, fashioned. That's an old yes. fashioned attitude. You wait. <laughs> I'll wait for the, yeah. How dare I? I'm neglecting yeah. uh, my patient's good care. So you probably read the journal when it comes in the paper. You don't yeah. even read it. <laughs> okay. Now the last thing I wanted to ask you, maybe not last thing, if we have more time, um, I guess I wanted to ask you about, I mean, I don't know. One of the things you said early on that kind of sticks with me is like, you know, some people were saying like, I'm a little disappointed in you for beating up on these people. And I guess I wonder, I, like part of me like tries to put my finger on like, why do they feel such a way? And I guess like, I don't know, as somebody who is a, you know, um, a professor at a university, you know, you wear many hats, you are seeing a lot of patients and you're doing the patient care and that's the medicine side. You know, you'd have done that in private practice or, you know, wherever you are, you're going to do that part. Then there's the part of like, you know, you're at a place that's on the cutting edge. So you're going to be running trials or participating and doing that kind of stuff. The third bucket, I think the third thing you do is like, at least uh, recently, I mean, recently, but even for a while, like you started to write really trenchant commentaries pointing to sort of these shortcomings. And, and that's where I spend a lot of my mental energy, but I also spend it a lot on clinic because I'm in clinic every Mondays uh, and I'm on service three months a year. But, you know, I, so I spend my mental energy on the thinking like from clinic ideas to like writing some paper, but the fourth bucket, the teaching people, 
Now you teach people. Now I think the reason going back to the beginning of the conversation is that the person who's doing that epoch venetoclax phase one, that's going to go on their CV and be like the thing that moves them up in their career. The teaching, all that teaching you do, like that's nice, but that's not the thing that's going to move you up in your career. And so I wonder if like some of the reason why people are so sensitive about criticism of trials is that we've made trials too important for your career. Like you should be getting more of the credit for the teaching and less of the credit for running the trial for promotions and stuff. And then people wouldn't feel so bad if somebody pointed out that some trials are like negligently unethical, you know? Uh, I wonder if your thoughts on that. So like, how do you feel? So I guess the question to you is, as somebody who prides himself on being an educator, my understanding is that most of the education you do, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like you're uncompensated for. Like you are literally going out of your way to volunteer to teach medical students, residents, and fellows. Papa Heem, the Twitter account, is a volunteer effort. You're not getting, you're not getting paid by your institution for running Papa Heem. Um, and big education is not paying me. <laughs> <laughs> big, yeah, big education not paying you. And when you're up for promotion, I think I hope there are going to be some people on the committee who say, you know. We really need to value Aaron for this, but I worry that a lot of people are going to say, I don't know what Papa Heem is and I don't know what Papa Heem do and I don't like the word Papa Heem. So I guess my question is, how do you think about, I don't know, why are you such a dogged educator when it don't help you? And like, I don't know, are, are there ways we could think about making that a more of a path and that kind of thing? Well, I will say when I started out, because like I'm an academic and I want to be promoted and be successful, I was any trial handed to me or anything, I was doing it. Okay. And that was what I did my first year or two. And um, I didn't like doing it. It just wasn't, I'm not saying it's not important. It just, it's not my favorite thing to do, be a clinical investigator on a trial. That's just not me. It's for some people, but for me, it wasn't what, what I enjoyed. And what I enjoyed, as you said, was teaching and, and, and writing. And, you know, just for those who don't know in academics, you could be on a, uh, an industry sponsored study, as you already pointed out, that you really didn't write or do hardly anything for other than, you know, enroll patients. I mean, you're doing stuff. Don't, don't, I'm not taking away credit, but the bulk of the scientific and academic is stuff is not done by you. It's just clinical work, which we all do anyways. Uh, um, and be some middle author of 50 um, and uh, gets in a journal. That means way more to my, to the academics in charge of my promotion than me spending days, uh, hours putting together lectures, running courses, teaching in my clinic, staying late because I'm teaching, um, that, that the, like, it's like insignificant compared to that middle author that I didn't really do anything as far as my effort. So that's, that's in the backdrop. So, so you want to be good, but I want to do what I want to do, but what I don't like doing is what I need to do for my career. So that's a very hard thing, uh, that, that I've encountered. So at some point I just said, F it, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I've kind of changed how I, I think people are starting to notice it, including my, my wife. Uh, I just stopped signing up for a lot of the clinical trials, freeing up time, canceling lots of meetings, doing much more teaching. Uh, anytime I get asked by the residents for an intern report or whatever, I just say yes. And if that is, is part of my clinic, I, I actually close down the clinic. Uh, I actually make less money because I get paid by the amount of patients right. I see. Uh, anytime a student asks to rotate with me in my clinic, whatever, I say yes. And my job satisfaction has gone up. I've actually freed up some time to work out more and write more. And it's worked out because now I'm writing more on things I like writing about that, that is interesting to me, meeting colleagues that have similar feelings. And that stuff counts, actually. So it, it has opened up other doors. So what I, what I will say is, and it sounds cliche, anyone in academics, don't do what you want to do to get the promotion. Do what you like doing and are good at 
and excel and it will it does find a way and um it's it's they are starting to take notice at my university i will say they are starting to recognize uh, that it has changed that uh you know when i see that bosses are starting to follow me on twitter and they're like maybe you should promote more about the camp and i'm seeing that and uh that's a good thing because now i'm doing what i like doing and it is actually helping my career and i can do less of what i want to do so i think the happy story is if it works out at the end. I mean, uh, I mean, right. It's, is it working out for you? I guess, I, I, but I also, I push it. Uh, you're, uh, I push it hard on some things real hard. Um, yeah. uh, as you, as you know, <laughs> but, um, but I guess, I guess, um, I, there's something you said there that I think is a core kernel that I will echo strongly. Um, which is like, I don't know when I, I remember when I was like a fellow and I was a fellow, like, uh, you know, people didn't know me from Adam, like they didn't know who, they didn't know who I was like. And so I, I got a, you know, I was a junior faculty at, in Oregon and, um, I don't think, uh, you know, nobody knew who I was or what I was interested in doing or whatever. And I think, um, it, I, I, I guess at that point I'd already, cause I, I trained at the NIH. And so one thing I'd already gotten a good taste of was like, you know, probably every single patient we took care of at the NIH was on protocol. I mean, we also rotated Georgetown Hospital Center, et cetera. So we see like standard of care. But um, when you're at NIH, I think every single patient was protocol. So like almost all, every patient encounter, I was like, oh, patient is here for visit X on this protocol. Um, here are their LFTs. Let's go to the, that three ring binder, open the ring binder, open the protocol, read the thing, think about like, oh, do they fit? Should we keep going? Should we not go? And what do we do? And then what if the protocol doesn't say what to do? What is the attending going to say? And so I'm always thinking that mindset. And I guess I don't know. I'd also been doing kind of work on like this kind of trial stuff. And so I knew I wasn't going to, I knew I didn't want to be like the trialist doing that all the time. That wasn't where my heart and passions lie. But when I started my job, I was like, I'm going to try doing this policy stuff. And I guess I don't think there was a path or anything, but I guess what I'm trying to say too long windedly is that one of the things you're saying is when you start your job, don't care, don't do what people think tell you to do or what they, what you think they want you to do. You just do what you do and what you want to do and see what happens. Just see what happens. And I think part of that is, um, you know, you're, you feel like uh, you're getting, it's, it's, it's going well. Um, you know, I've always just done what I wanted to do in these five, six years of six years now of being faculty. Um, I think that some of the things have been incredibly validating, like making that podcast plenary session, um, you know, I guess that's kind of how, you know, we met a little bit like through the podcast, but also through Twitter and stuff that's been, but I would say Twitter has been less validating because there's something about that algorithm that makes people like, you know, you were talking about the trial, but you were perceived as talking about the people. And then they may be trying to make some other point, but it comes across as like, they're bullying you. And like, I don't know, it's always just so combative on that platform, but like with podcasting and like this video we're going to put out, like, you know, I think people are going to listen and it's more, um, they won't feel visceral rage at us, whatever, you know? So, okay. So that's been validating, but I think other things kind of cut the other way. Um, you know, I think cost of drugs, conflict of interest the, and, and trials being unethical, they're always sensitive subjects. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess my view is, and I wonder how you feel about it. Like, you know, um, I, I feel like I just blinked and six years of my career is over. And I don't know how many, how many years is my career going to be 30 years, 35 years. I, I don't know, maybe 25 years, 20 years depends. I don't know, but I guess six goes like that. Six is gone. Six is gone. Okay. So I only got, I only got like, you know, 14 left or I don't know. And I don't know, I guess I hope that we, there is some change on some of these issues that have concerned me and that we've worked on before I'm done. And I guess I feel that that's an urgency. Um, for, for the patients, for society, like we can't spend all this money on this anymore on, on drugs that just don't offer benefits to people. Um, 
And, and I guess I feel like, I don't know, somebody needs to say it and say it loudly and say it over again and explain why and try to persuade others because otherwise we're never going to have the change. And so like what you were saying, like, if you're not going to say it on Twitter, then where are you going to say it? Um, but I guess I agree with you that more people should just do what they want to do and let the chips fall. No, but I, a, a, a junior faculty just, you know, who is, agrees with some of my, my thoughts on these and your thoughts on these issues, because you keep tweeting it and naming people, but nothing's going to change. And um, I want to point out that that's not true. Uh, things are starting to change and I'm more optimistic. I mean, you know, you, I and Mani and some of the other other people we've written up, we wrote a lot about Selenexor. Okay? Yeah, talk about that. Yeah. And, yeah. And um, I, was, I was very critical of that. And they had a randomized study. Uh, um, that was Selly, God, it's Selly Palm Decks versus Palm Decks. Yeah, yeah. And we were like, we were critical about it. Yeah, and um, I think it started as a joke, me and Selly, and a lot of people would like, what do you think about this with Selly? We know what Papa Heem thinks, but given the amount of followers and the traction, like clearly the company was aware. Um, and guess what? They changed their study. They changed it to a triplet triplet. And I yeah. truly believe they did that because of us or part of the oh, stuff of that course. we did. Yeah. I would say I put you and Mani like one and yeah. two for the things that like led them to change because yeah, and, you were relentless on it. Yeah. And guess what? Carrier Farm and I, I mean, I've disagreed, but like I applaud them. They changed it and they actually, it's a good study now. I wouldn't roll in that study. Aaron Goodman would roll on a selling XOR study because you heard it here first. Arms, I will say first, if that's, I, I support that study. It's actually going to answer a question in the relapse space of triplet versus triplet. And uh, we made a change. Um, you know, I'm not saying Mel Flufin was, pulled because of us. But um, I don't know. I think we definitely created a lot of stir and people thought twice about that drug. Uh, um, um, so I do think we can make a change. And I do think the fellows, especially now that social media and people are using Twitter and things like that, they are more um, they are more engaged. Uh, I think things are starting to change. And I give a lot of lectures to the fellows and residents. And trust me, if you're a part of it, you hear my two cents on a lot of these issues. So education is also a platform for me to uh, share my feelings when I'm talking about these drugs. Um, so um, I do, I am hopeful. That's my, my message of hope at the end of this. That's really good. I mean, yeah. I, I, I want to echo that too. And I want to also make the point that like, um, when, if you, I mean, if you take a broad look at medical history, I think oftentimes change um, is uh, gradual erosion and then the house fall, you know, the house slides. Uh, what do I mean by that is like um, a lot of people start talking about any, like on, on the outside, it looks like things haven't changed that much. But a lot of different people who you don't know are being influenced in different ways to start to be recognize these problems. I mean, I guess, what are we in the business of? The first thing we're in the business of is like, let's just recognize what we did here with Epoch Manetoclax. Let's just recognize what we're doing with Melflufin, uh, with Melflufin, Dara Dex versus Dara in somebody who's progressed on Dara. Let's just recognize what we're doing. Okay, so then more and more people start to recognize it. Some of the people, they didn't recognize it before on, on you know, bad control arms, poor pros protocol therapy crossover. You did it when you didn't need it and you didn't do it when you did need it. You know, those kinds of things, you kind of get those ideas out there and then you never know. I mean, there's going to be a moment where the costs are going up and up. Healthcare spending is going up and up. Like these, this is an untenable force. 
and political pressure to do something. I just read today that, you know, the White House is backing away from prescription drug reform in this reconciliation bill, but they won't be able to stay away from it forever. Even the even the industry knows that the window is narrowing on how many more years they can eke out this wins. And meanwhile, you've undermined, you've got, you've put the idea in people's mind that these are the recurrent problems in trials. There will someday be a moment where you will have done enough hollowing out that the whole thing will kind of collapse and you can actually have some big change. And I think that's how big change has always happened in, in medicine is that there have been subtle uh, erosion of thinking or changing of thinking behind the scenes. And so I would tell the fellow that, wait for it. I'm, uh, you know, I guess I'd say, wait for it. I think, uh, uh, you know, I, and I'm, I'm optimistic too. So last topic, what was the last topic? The last topic was, I want to ask about clinical medicine. Um, I was recently watching YouTube. You know me, I'm a, they call me a, I'm just like any other kid these days. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an influencer. No. <laughs> I want to be a YouTuber. Well, but I, I was encouraged by Dog to actually try my hand at these videos and I've been working on it. And, I, and it's something to, it's a hobby, you know, like anything else you start to think about what's this camera, what's this light and how does this work, you know, all this stuff. And then I did a little bit of an investigation as to like, well, what's the other medical content out on YouTube? And actually podcasts, you know, there are a lot of podcasts in oncology that, you know, I like. Um, you've been on many. Uh, I run one, and there's, but there's others. There's like, there's tons of podcasts that I think I'm happy to listen to. You weren't to on the list. list, though. So I don't know if I, you, oh. you're, you weren't on the list. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, do you see that? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. There's like a uh, list of, I, I, I guess only like, will watch what's on the list because I trust the, 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 uh, whoever wrote that list. That damn list. This, there's some list of like the 25 best podcasts uh, in oncology. And of course, plenary session is not on there. Even Chadi's podcast is not on there. I think that's a solid podcast. Yeah, you know, he's a many- friendly guy. I don't know. He's I'm very surprised about that one. Very surprised. Um, and then I was like, you know, I was like, well, I'm like, I, I full disclosure, we have some project ongoing on podcasts. And so we have a lot of back behind the scenes data. And I can promise you that list is not accurate. <laughs> but I think the list reflects like the companies are want to steer you to those 25 and they don't want to steer you to the other ones. They don't want to steer you to ones where someone's going to be critical of their product. So that's what I, that's my gut feeling. Although there was one or two on there that they are a little bit critical, but most critical podcast is not on there. Um, anyway, but um, uh, what was that? What were we even talking about? Um, YouTube, your YouTube. Oh, YouTube. oh so I, I looked on YouTube and I guess I see. If you look at YouTube, Aaron, it blew me away. There are hundreds and hundreds of medical students like vlog, vlogging their life, the video, the video blogs. And they're telling Do they get like, views. Are they like looked at a lot? Uh, it depends. Some of Other them than by you, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was doing it as re, uh, it was a strictly research. No, I was That's doing it just to see what the, like I was. Cu- I was genuinely curious. Like, I don't know. I want to watch a video on medicine. What's out there for me? And honestly, like besides Z Dog and my channel, I couldn't find anything that interested me because it wasn't technical enough. And these vlogs didn't interest me, but I was interested by the sheer number of them. Some of them get a lot of views, and some of them get less views. Um, if I was a medical student, I was a, I was a nerdy, uh, reclusive kind of person. So mine would have gotten very few views, but you know, um, um, some of them have certain visual appeals and that gets a lot of views. Uh, but what I found was interesting about it was that people are watching because they want to get a sense of like, what it is, what is it, to, what does it mean to practice medicine? And when they watch these videos, they see what it means, what it, what it means to be a student who spends a lot of time in the library gym and cooking, but I don't think they know what it means to be a doctor. So I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you is if you could kind of, I don't know, as much as you can talk about it, like 
I don't know, somebody comes into your, let's say it's a Tuesday, you're in clinic and I'm a new diagnosis of, I don't know, ALCL, advanced stage, CD30 positive, um, exquisitely CD30 positive, ALK positive. Um, you know, like what's going through your mind when you meet me? I'm nervous. I don't know any, I don't know what all that means. I just know the doctor told me, you know, I've been having some pain in my leg and they scanned me or having some pain in my back and they scanned me and they got all these lymph nodes. I have cancer. I'm coming to see you. I guess like, I don't know. What do you think about what, what do you hope to do for this person? When you talk to this person, what do you, what do you want to talk about? If there were new ALs, you know, I'm just giving an example, but like, I guess I'm trying to get a sense out of you, like to you, what does it mean to be a doctor for this, such a person? Yeah, I think, and what's hard for, I don't know if it's hard for most to understand, but I, at least for me and what keeps me up at night and uh, with every medical decision I make, especially in oncology, I think, especially in hemolignancy transplant, I mean, these really are, I mean, this is someone's freaking life. I, I mean, it's like, you know, I, you know, I, I saw an older individual yesterday uh, who has a potentially curable thing and should I give her the curative intent therapy, but I think has a real high chance of killing her or should I do the not, but maybe she'll live longer, but then I'm denying her her cure. And I discussed this with her and um, she's like, I trust you. And, and, and I, I told her, I go, just, you know, I appreciate that. And I, I recognize the magnitude of this decision and, and that having to, you know, right. That decision is her, her life on this planet that won't get religious or philosophical, but all we know for sure is you get one life and you know, we hope for other things, but that's what we know. And um, I think the fact that we are confronted on that nonstop is especially in the field of oncology. I know others, but like we're these, the absolute decision that I make based off all the training knowledge and me understanding of the data I have uh, and the in, in imperfections that there is associated with that this person's life in front of me uh, is dependent on me making that decision. And um, that is what's the hardest for me. And, and, uh, and then trying to go home and turn it off and, you know, go trick or treating with my daughters or play guitar and have a burrito. And um, uh, that still is the heart. And like a part of me, like, why do I do this to myself? And for like my, my wife, who's a doctor, she's like, I could never do what you do. I don't know how you go home and not cry every night and knowing that you have to make those decisions, the importance and a part of me is like, yeah, why do I do this? And then there's a part of me that like, this is really is a great, it's awesome what we do. And the fact that people trust me to make that decision that hopefully most of the time is the right decision. And I am curing patients or making them live, live longer, making them feel better. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but that oh, to me is getting the, to it. the crux of, of, of my existence as an oncologist that, um, that, and, and that's where, you know, we complain about kind of all the time we spend doing all the bullshit. Uh, I forget if I'm allowed to say that on this, uh, you know, all the paperwork and uh, stupid forms we have to do. And I think what really, and I don't know way out of that, uh, but like that takes away time for me learning and reading and making those decisions for my patients that truly are life or death. And, and, and that's, you know, on top of wasting my time is I'd much rather spend, you know, like that patient I just discussed with you, Redo, reading that literature, uh, re-talking with colleagues, which we do all the time in this field, the field's close. And so I know I can make that best decision and feel comfortable with it. And, you know, all this other stuff we do, it just adds to anxiety and anger when I, I, I know that I, 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 sometimes I have to go fast with patients and I'm like, I start feeling, Aaron, this isn't the type of Aaron, the Aaron care is dominating it and learning everything about it and, and really doing it. And sometimes I feel like I'm unable to do that. And then that causes anger. So those are, that's my uh, description of medicine right now for me. 
uh, if I answered your question. Uh, but it's 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 hard. But I'm not. I complain about it, but I still want to do it and really doing anything else. I do. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, Is that good? That's good. Yeah. Hold on one second. I screwed that part up. Okay. Did you not record any of that? No, no. I did. I did. Say the last bit so again. I'm not repeating that. It made me emotional. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things you talked about that's I think is really good, and I, I'm trying to think if it exists in the solid tumor. I think it does exist in the solid tumor space. There's sometimes with, you know, a 3A lung cancer, uh, somebody who's got lung cancer, but they're really vulnerable. You de always debating that, you know, curative, curative route versus just kind of treating them as a metastatic patient. But with hemolignancies, you often get, you know, the older, frailer person, and there's like two paths. You get the push for cure path, but high toxicity, or the, the, or the extend survival path with less toxicity, but maybe better quality of life. And that's always sort of like a, a decision that you need to agonize over if you're doing a good job. The other kind of category, I think, is like how many times in, in oncology you got the situation where it's like, truly data-free, you know, uh, no randomized data, no uncontrolled phase two studies, no, and not even any good retrospective chart reviews, you know, you're truly data-free from, you know, some novel germline genetic mutation syndrome to, you know, some very rare hemolignancy. Um, that's always a challenge. I think, I think you're onto it, which is that, you know, somebody's life is on the line and that's what makes it, I think, rewarding and also important. And I think that's why I was kind of annoyed with some of these videos because I was like, they're not even getting to the key of like why that's so important. And that's also why I was annoyed with that idea that, you know, Aaron shouldn't talk about Venetoclax epoch because of what the people who did the trial might think. I was like, what about the people who are like living to take that, who are on that, like those people? Like These are people's lives. lives that I, yeah. I am amazed how through all the crap that we do in, in medicine and, and whatever debate, that's like we really have to, I mean, I'm not trying to be cliche. It's like, these are people's freaking lives. Like this could be my wife, my kids. And uh, you really can't lose sight of that no matter what. Okay. And if you have to compromise that, then, then you need to do something else. Basically, if you feel like the only way to, to succeed in what you're doing is to compromise that, then you need to do something else. I mean, that's the bottom line. And, and again, I stand by my statements, I, you know, uh, and my feelings on those trials and the things we discussed and, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> and that's also my pet peeve about. Yeah. Everyone's always want to, I want to, I want to do a specialty where I can always get out of work at five o'clock. I was like, well, then you're going to have to do something that's not that important. I'll promise you that because if you're doing something that really matters, you're not always going to get out at five o'clock. Sometimes you're going to be there a long time dealing with this. Okay. That's my bias. That's my bias. No, no. I, I mean, you're true. Like it's the end of the day and some critical thing comes yeah, back and yeah. you could very well do it tomorrow. Um, but then that thing has to get to you're like, this is someone's life and like something needs to be acted upon. Well, that. that's, and you know, yeah. that's the thing that you and, can't teach. Like, I don't know. No, and it's nonstop. And that's the worst part about kind of what we do. It's nonstop. And like, it's some, you know, and that's the hardest is balancing that, you know, somehow and still being sane and being a good husband and being a good father. Uh, but it, it's nonstop. And that's the essence of being a doctor. And, um, you're right. I don't know how you teach that. I didn't really realize it till. I really didn't realize the magnitude of it. So I was an attending physician at UCSD with all the training. I got all 10 years or whatever I did. Yeah. I always say that is that you don't yeah. realize the magnitude of it until you're the attending until you're the attending. Yeah. And, and then the, yeah, I think that's a great point. Okay. How do we Aaron teach that better? I don't know. Uh, um, um, but I did not realize the magnitude of it uh, until I was an attending. Aaron Goodman, 
Well put. Always a pleasure. Great talking with you. Post this soon. Until next time. See you, buddy. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.